Let us pray. Lord, from ancient law and ancient lessons, speak to us this morning the word we need for the living of these days. Thanks be to God. Amen. We're starting a new sermon series this morning. So for the next couple of weeks, four, I think, we're going to be reading some of Jesus's teachings from the Gospel of Matthew, listening in particular for what Jesus has to say to us about loving our enemy. Jesus gives this instruction very directly in the Sermon on the Mount. He knew that his audience in the first century was conditioned to tribalism, nationalism, legalism. Maybe that sounds familiar. And he blows apart their expectations about the duty they owe to other people. He sets up a totally new definition of love and community. In Matthew 5, 43 to 44, he says, You shall love your neighbor. No, excuse me, let me go back. You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's always been a hard instruction for Christians to understand. We tend to fall pretty short on loving neighbor, much less on loving those we consider to be our enemies. You've heard through a lot of announcements and emails and social media that we're going to be welcoming Arthur Brooks here on November 16th as our Kittrell lecturer, and he will talk about his best-selling book, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. The lecture is free. It's open not just to the Trinity community, but to everybody. So please register and bring your neighbors. Maybe even bring someone with whom you disagree. I'll give you a minute to think about who you're going to invite. This lesson about loving enemy is timely in a world at war and in a nation that is hyper-politicized and starting what promises to be a contentious year lead up to the next presidential election, one year away. This is a good time for us to be redirected away from a mindset that we're supposed to group up and lash out in order to defeat another. Our goal is not to win one for the side. In fact, Jesus' teachings pull us off the playing field entirely so that we're not looking over in contempt at the other side, but we are looking together toward God. Our purpose is to love God. And loving God means loving neighbor and enemy. After he preached the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus went on teaching. You all know these stories. Everywhere he went, he broke apart people's allegiances to their groups, their tribes, and he gave them instead a radical vision of love. When we get to our scripture lesson for today, he has come into Jerusalem in the last week of his life on earth. It's Monday of what we remember as Holy Week. So Jesus is days away from being executed. Before this, he has healed people who were untouchable, welcomed those who were suffering mental illness. He has surrounded himself with people others hate, sinners and tax collectors. He's taught, and just before he speaks this lesson, he's cleansed the temple of people who were using it to turn a profit at the expense of the poor. 
Whether any of those people watching and listening knew it or not, he was busy undoing labels of neighbor and enemy. He was taking away people's justifications for denigrating each other. It caused a stir, and some of the most suspicious observers of what Jesus was doing were people in positions of authority. In this part of the gospel, Jesus has a series of conversations, or we might even read them as confrontations, with groups called Pharisees and Sadducees. Give me a nod if you've heard these terms, but aren't quite sure what Pharisees and Sadducees were. You're not alone. Pharisees were keepers of Jewish law, so they were, of course, alarmed when here comes a prophet reinterpreting the law they've been upholding. Sadducees were a different group of priests or scholars who also thought they had the right answers about the law, but who were opposed to the Pharisees. So we find ourselves observing a contentious triangle with two groups who think they're right, determined to denigrate the other and to win in their rightness. And sound familiar? The Pharisees and Sadducees questioned Jesus maybe to try to humiliate him in public, maybe to get a deeper understanding of his interpretation of scripture, maybe both. He answers their questions and then he turns and asks them a question, a question that lets them know that he has a different kind of authority than either of them and that his authority trumps theirs. Now, we're gonna hear Matthew 22, 34 to 46. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so just before this, the Sadducees are questioning him, and he answers them to the point that they're speechless, ask no other questions. The Pharisees gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question, turning to them. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said, how is it then that David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We can't read emotion, so we don't know whether those Pharisees were testing or trying to understand. But surely those listeners early on had the same confusion we do when we hear these commandments. Jesus has linked neighbor and enemy together now and told us that we owe them both love. So we have at least three big questions. Who are our enemies? Why should we love them? And maybe the hardest how? 
The word enemy gives us the first clue to the first answer. This is a word that literally means not your friend, in ami, someone whose relationship with you is characterized by enmity, not love. Someone who's hostile, maybe even wishes harm. Jesus says it himself, pray for those who persecute you. The actions of an enemy are not for our good, and yet we are being told to love someone who wants our harm. When I hear that, it immediately feels impossible. How am I going to force myself to feel good about someone I can't even stand? And yes, there are those people. That might actually be impossible if we think of love here as a feeling. But love is not an emotion as we usually think of it. When Jesus talks about love, he isn't worried about whether we feel good. The love he commands is not emotion. It is an ongoing, intentional series of behaviors to seek the good of another. Love is action, often in spite of how we feel. It's action for another's good, even when what we feel is something more like hate. When I was a kid and I pictured enemies in my mind, they were the stuff of comics and fantasy. There were always in those stories forces of good. They were clear. They were well-defined. And not by accident, they were trying to do good, not for their own glory, but for the sake of the community. In fact, if you think back to the heroes you have loved in your life, many of them were anonymous. They had secret superhero identities because it's important to those stories that they're doing good not for fame for themselves, but for the well-being of others. My 16-year-old son James and I were brainstorming this week about potential Halloween costumes. James is in that space between trick-or-treating little kid and not wearing anything. And so he was trying to think of what hits the right tone if you're six feet tall and 16. And he made a hilarious list. He said maybe he could be Clark Kent, but not Superman. He could be Peter Parker, but not Spider-Man. He could be Steve Rogers, but not Captain America. Bruce Wayne, but not Batman. I'll let you know what he picks. But you see the common thread. The heroes of our beloved fiction are people working for community without any need for recognition for themselves. And they have to fight for good because there are always enemies in those stories. They're characters, really. They're almost never round characters. They're villains who unapologetically seek recognition. They would do anything for wealth, and they would hurt anyone for power. These enemies intentionally break down community, turn people against each other so they can rise between the broken relationships to dominate others. Again, sound familiar? In fiction, there are clear enemies, and we love to hate them. But what happens in real life? What happens to a culture 
when we start assigning the label of neighbor to groups we identify with, to people we already love, and we start calling enemy those we want to hate. What happens to community when we start to think of neighbors as enemies, when we merge ideology and person and then hate them both? We're seeing right now the kind of devastating violence that comes from these labels. I don't have any insight into the complicated conflict in the Middle East. It would be arrogant to say otherwise. But the label of enemy is real. It's pervasive in that struggle. And while there seems to be no easy resolution to it, I do feel comfortable saying that our Lord does not want this, this waste of precious life under the guise of enemy fighting enemy. And surely the racism and anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim hate that have become identities are the enemy of the kind of community God wants. Here in our country, we have become practiced at subsuming people into ideologies and calling them enemy. Mostly this take of political identities I might be making some of you nervous. Believe me, I hear all the time that there should be no politics in the pulpit. It's good because this is just a music stand. (laughs) I am not espousing a political position today, but our Lord certainly has something to say about a culture that throws around the label of enemy. In our hyper-political country, We assign that label quickly and definitively and often along political lines. Our culture has fallen prey to the narrative that we're playing a zero-sum game where someone must lose and someone must win, and we've come to believe that we must reject people in order for ideology to win. We're going to be hearing from Arthur Brooks, as you've heard. He opens his book, Love Your Enemies, with a story about a time when he was giving a speech about perceptions in our country around the labels liberal and conservative, terms that, for the record, don't mean the same thing to all people and are not found in the Bible. And after this speech, a member of the audience came up to Arthur Brooks and said that he had been too kind in his description of liberals. This woman said to him, they are not compassionate and empathetic, they are stupid and evil. She told Professor Brooks that he had an obligation to say so because, as she said, that's the truth. In this church, we might have some folks who agree with her, and we might have some folks who are now horrified that someone would call them such horrible things, And you are all here together in this community and in this worship because those labels are not God's. That audience member's comments to Arthur Brooks ignored any actual person, of course, and she seems to have missed the point of the speech. It is easier to hate anonymously than to be faced with the complexities of a real life But with those words, she showed how easy it is for us to call even our neighbors enemy. She valued affiliation with her group above community, above mutual respect, above love. 
Professor Brooks tells that story to make a point that I suspect is true for all of us. He has loved ones and neighbors and friends of all sorts of political stripes. And in labeling some of them as enemy, this woman presented him with the choice that has become so much of our culture, loved ones or ideology. It's a false choice. It's no choice, really. It might generate a sense of connectedness in shared outrage, but it does nothing to create community or preserve its future. Melissa and I did not talk ahead of time, but I'm also going to talk about David Brooks's article from earlier this fall called How America Got Mean. I know it touched a nerve with people here. Eight people sent it to me to make sure that I'd seen it. I did read it, and there was a paragraph that resonated so much as a description of the false identity of enemy that keeps us from loving one another in this country today. Brooks writes that politics provides an easy way to feel a sense of purpose. You don't have to feed the hungry or sit with the widow to be moral. You just have to experience the right emotion. You delude yourself that you're participating in civic life by feeling properly enraged at the other side. That righteous fury riding in your gut lets you know that you're engaged in caring about this country. The culture war is a struggle that gives life meaning. Political and media personalities gin up dramas in which our side is emotionally validated and the other side is emotionally shamed. But friends, that identity of shared indignation is empty. It has no foundation in our faith. When Jesus tells us to love, he is not thinking in any way about our winning or feeling good. Because loving enemy isn't about us. We could hear Jesus saying here, it's not you, it's me. This commandment is about getting outside ourselves to live Jesus's love. The first commandment, love God. The other, to preserve community. Let's not forget how they were put to us in order and how they were connected. The greatest commandment in this teaching echoes the same instruction several times in the Old Testament. Sometimes we hear that we're to love God with heart, mind, and soul. Sometimes the Hebrew word, which is ma'od, is translated with strength. So heart, mind, soul, strength. It has the sense of the largest thing possible. Love God with all of your muchness, with everything you've got. The first commandment has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. So what have we got? We've got heart, soul, mind, time, talent, treasure, worship, prayer, song, service, learning, fellowship, this is fun. Energy, intelligence, imagination, passion, humility, commitment. We could keep going. God doesn't tell us to love others so we feel good about our groups. God tells us to love others because we love God with everything we have. And one cannot love God without loving what God loves. Neighbor and enemy. I invite you to get very concrete about this. 
I did yesterday, and it was a helpful exercise. Close your eyes if you need to. Picture an enemy. Picture your enemy. Who is it? Not the comic book or movie villains, not the green goblin or Thanos or Sauron. If you don't know is, I'll tell you later. Who is enemy to you? What have you wished or prayed for that person or group? Harm or good? Now, assume that if you can picture any person or if you've pictured a group and not a specific person, that someone else might have pictured you or some group you are in. That hurts, doesn't it? Those are the ones we should love. Those are the ones who should love us. Not because it feels good, but because we love God. God does not force us into the false choice of ideology or love. God doesn't offer a choice on the other side of love at all. In this lesson, he uses authority to move the debate out of that false choice altogether. When he asks those Pharisees what they know about the Messiah, he sets them up to realize that the old categories don't apply. The choices are no longer loved ones or beliefs, neighbors or enemies, liberals or conservatives. The groups for us now are people we love and more people we are commanded to love. That's the who and the why. We love neighbor and enemy because we love God. The season will also try to get concrete about how, and we sure need help here. There's no evidence that our world is getting more unified or less violent. Next week, our text following lectionary is actually going back to the Beatitudes, that beautiful series of reversals that open the Sermon on the Mount. But in the meantime, we just heard part of Leviticus, ancient law that gives us very concrete instructions about how to love neighbor and enemy. It might need to be translated a little bit into sort of common parlance for our time. So maybe it would say something like this. Don't judge. Don't judge based on group identity. Don't judge without knowing a person. Don't gossip. Don't spread rumors. Don't name call. We might add, don't cede authority to pundits who thrive on the empty identity of shared outrage. Don't ridicule people where you could together talk about solutions. Don't profit from anyone else's hurt, whether it's a feeling of an emotional profit from shaming someone or financial profit. Don't ever stand by when someone else's life is devalued. Don't secretly hate anyone, and if you have a conflict, don't bear a grudge, but have the courage to work it through with love. Friends, whatever we might feel, we are told to choose the action of love. Seek the good of neighbor and enemy. Love God. Love each other. Amen.